Well, hey, good morning, church. How are we doing today? Hey, it's, uh, we're about halfway through November, and it was like a good 20 degrees outside. And so I have to ask this question, does anyone have their Christmas lights up yet? No, we got one. Maybe, I'm just trying to see where my people are at, because my lights are up. I'm so ready for the holiday season. Um, but hey, I'm so glad to see you guys here today. As Ben said, my name is Christian, and I'm on staff. And we're kind of starting this series today, but it's really a continuation of where we've been last week. Uh, this series, we're calling it Parables, kind of, because where we find ourselves in the scriptures in the book of Luke is Jesus is still teaching but we're transitioning away from parables. So he's still teaching lessons, but he's not going to use these stories or images uh, after this week. So today we're kind of in a transitional parable of sorts, where he's wrapping up these lessons around these stories. And for those of you who are joining us, welcome. Uh, we just want to reiterate a parable is a short story or metaphor to try and get us to understand greater things, to try and help us understand heavenly things, okay? And so today's parable, I'll be honest with you guys, the last parable I got to teach on a few weeks ago was my favorite parable. It's almost my favorite passage in all of Scripture. It's the, the parable of the prodigal son. Now today's passage, I'm not even kidding you, it's actually, it's been a source of anxiety for me. Uh, I don't think I've ever prepared for a sermon as much as I've prepared for today's sermon. Today's sermon is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And if you know anything about this parable, you know that it almost forces you to take a look at the doctrine of hell. Okay. So when I found out I was preaching this sermon, I was like, hell... No, right? Like, I was not looking forward to it, because who wants to talk about hell? No one, right? No one gets excited about teaching about hell or learning about the doctrine of hell, right? No one's at home right now saying, honey, turn the TV up, grab me an everything bagel, go get the kids. They need to hear this sermon. They're talking about hell at church, right? No one enjoys this doctrine. And so today, all of us, we're going to agree to have a terrible time. Does that sound okay? Y'all good with that? Okay. Um, you know, I've tried to figure out how to make this sermon a bit more accessible and just easier to work through. And so I was trying to think like, ah, it's really hard to insert jokes in a sermon about hell, right? Because there's some things that you maybe shouldn't joke about. So like, is it appropriate to say, hey, today we're diving into hell, <laughs> right? Maybe if you're like, I don't know if I should laugh or if I shouldn't, and if you're sweaty and anxious, you're just like me right now, right? Or maybe is it appropriate to say, like, instead of ACDC's highway to hell today, we're going to be on the highway to understanding and denouncing hell. Amen? Right? So, like, you know, it's, it's hard to figure out how to make this content a bit more easier to work through, right? And so uh, most of the jokes I could make today uh, could be mildly inappropriate, so I'm going to try and keep it cool um, and keep my job. But if you don't see me on the preaching rotation anymore, this sermon is the reason uh, why. <laughs> um, Lord have... Yeah, there we go. There we go, right? Um, but in all seriousness, this is a very difficult topic, right? This is a very difficult, delicate topic, but it's one that we need to work through. And so I want to make a couple things very clear on the front end um, to kind of preface this sermon. Um, the first thing being this. A lot of times, or, or seldom, do I ever see people fall in love with Jesus 
as a result of being terrified about hell, right? Seldom do I see people become disciples actively engaged in the church as a product of being terrified and scared to death about hell. And so what I'm saying here is I don't see if we use hell in our, as our primary method of evangelism, I don't think that has the outcome that we want it to have. And so I want to make it clear today, my objective is not to wield the doctrine of hell as a weapon to convince you to follow Jesus, okay? I believe, personally, I believe that the gospel and the good news is sufficient to that end. I think the good news of Christ alone is enough to win over admiration and devotion to Jesus. I'm not saying we don't talk about hell. Here I am today working through it, right? But what I'm saying is I'm not going to wield this as my primary weapon or as a weapon in this evangelism. So I don't want anyone to think that that's about, that that's going to be what happens today. But rather, I'm going to as faithfully as I can, as clearly as I can, teach about this doctrine so that we can better understand what Jesus is getting at in today's parable. Because Jesus is teaching something to his audience then, and I believe he's trying to teach it to us now. So my objective is to make this as accessible as possible and to faithfully teach what the scriptures teach in their literary context. Does that sound okay? And so that is my objective uh, this morning. Now, I want to confess I've done, as I mentioned, I, I don't know if I've ever worked on a sermon as much as this one. It is about three hours long, so it's not that long. We make jokes a lot about how long our sermon's going to be, but I hope to get you out in an hour, right? Um, but I've done my best at preparing for this sermon, but I'm just going to let you know on the front end, it's not going to be perfect, right? It is not going to be a perfect sermon. Um, what we covered today may be new to a lot of us. Maybe some of what we covered today might challenge how you've seen the doctrine of hell. But fortunately, our understanding of these things aren't our ticket to getting to heaven or hell, right? And so what I want us to do this morning is to wrestle as a congregation to work through this. I understand some of this is a tad dense. You know, some of you came to church today and you're like, I'm so excited for the word. And then you heard this, you're like, I'm not so excited for the word, right? And you're not uh, looking forward to this. So I understand this might be dense. Some of it might be heavy. And I have no expectation for you guys. If you, if anyone wants to just get up and leave or just go get some coffee, water, walk outside, I will not be offended in the slightest. I promise promise you that I have no expectation for you, okay? But what I want for us to do as a church, this expectation is one that I do have, that we would be a community of grace wrestling with the scriptures, okay? That we'd be gracious with each other, be gracious with me. There's a lot to cover in a small period of time, that we'd be a community of grace to work through that. Does that sound okay? Now, in the instance that this gets too heavy, um, today I brought with me Ben's one six scale posable military action figure. Y'all remember this guy from his sermons. So, uh, you know, in case it gets too difficult and you need like a safe object to look at, you can look at Military Joe over here or you can glance at the cross. I know I kind of gave him a lot of flack for using that in a sermon. I was like, Ben, I need like any sense of humor I can get for this one, man. And so we got Military Joe right here. Uh, but before we jump into today's uh, passage, let me go ahead and pray for us real quick. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your scriptures. 
the whole of the scriptures. We thank you that you've given that to us as a gift to point to you. And so we pray, God, this morning that you would give us clarity, that these words would not be mine, that they'd be yours, and you just give us great clarity for what you are calling us to. We pray for great clarity as we leave this place, that we would continue to participate in your kingdom, that we would participate to, that we would continue to participate in that uh, which you have for us. And so, God, we just pray that these words would be yours, not mine. We pray, glorified. We pray this in your name, Amen. So before we jump into the passage, I have a little bit of work to do to kind of set it up. And so first things first, we want to identify how did we get to this, this passage? How did we get to this juncture in Luke where, they, where Jesus almost deemed it necessary to talk about this idea of hell, right? How did we arrive here? And so as we mentioned before, Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem, right? And we all know what happens in Jerusalem. When Jesus gets there, he'll be crucified and then he will come back to life. So on his way, he knows he's going to die. On his way, he's like, I got to teach people. I got to tell them about the kingdom of heaven. I have to tell them about what I am doing. And so as we've seen in this series, he's been doing parable, parable, parable after parable, teaching after teaching to try and help these people get what he is up to, right? And so he's teaching them constantly about these things. But there's a problem. He's been talking to the religious folk. In fact, if you look back at our series, almost every parable, almost every parable is specifically for the Pharisees, for the religious audience of that day. And so he's doing teaching after teaching to try and get them to understand what the kingdom of heaven is like. But the problem is is they don't get it, right? Ben talked about this last week, that the the Pharisees, these religious people, were obsessed with their status and their pride and their money and their moral righteousness, right? And Jesus is trying to correct this error. He's trying to invite them to not participate in their own kingdoms of wealth, money, and pride, but to invite them to participate in the kingdom of heaven, right? But they're just not getting it. Just not getting it. It. And so that's what brings us to today's parable. It's, a, it's almost a transitional parable because it's the last parable. So Jesus is like, this is my last parable to share with this group. And then he continues on in his, in his journey. And so the parable that he wraps up on is painting a picture of what is to come should they continue to live in their kingdoms of wealth, of pride, and of self-status, right? Should they continue to participate in the kingdoms that they've built Should they continue to idolize these things? Should they continue to try and be their own saviors? Jesus is trying to help them to understand this is what is to come. It's almost a gracious warning, right? Every teaching that Jesus gives us is so gracious. And so he's trying to be gracious to the Pharisees and say, this is what is to come should you continue in these things. And so that's what brings us to today's parable, which is that of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, I want to mention a few more things uh, before we even get to talking about hell. Um, What we have to remember is that Jesus' parables, and we've seen this up until this point, right, employ metaphor and imagery to point to something greater, right? Jesus' metaphor point to something. They use, and we see this all throughout scripture and a lot of poetry and a lot of writings. Jesus' parables 
employ metaphor and imagery to help these people be able to experience something they cannot yet experience, to help them understand something that is heavenly, that is greater. And so before we jump in the passage, we have to understand that. But then also before we actually jump into the passage, we have to talk about hell, right? Because I say the word hell, and I'm sure all of us have some sort of image that comes to our mind. So what I want to spend some time on this morning is actually talking about, hey, what does Scripture say about hell? What doesn't Scripture say about hell? And let's make sure we have the right understanding of this before we jump into this passage. And so I want to do that to give us clarity. And then before we, uh, before we jump in, I want to give two more, two disclaimers, okay? I'm going to show my cards on the front end. I, my background is biblical studies, but I would not consider myself to be an expert of any kind. Uh, today's uh, sermon, today's, this parable, uh, I've, has been greatly informed by the work of two of my favorite theologians, and they're probably people you might have heard of before. Um, the first one being Tim Mackey. If you've used the Bible Project before, that free video curriculum series, uh, Tim Mackey's the founder of that. I would recommend that to anybody to use if you're wanting to wrestle with Scripture, learn about Scripture. It is the most accessible and effective tool that I've seen in biblical education today. So Tim Mackey, he's informed kind of a lot of these ideas, his interpretation in wrestling with Scripture. And then the second uh, is an individual that a lot of us might know is C.S. Lewis, right? He's the most renowned theologian of the 20th century. He's the author of the Narnia series, right? I love those movies. Uh, but he also writes uh, very intentionally on the doctrine of heaven, and he identified if we're going to talk about heaven, then we have to talk about hell, right? And so he wrote a lot about that. So, so that you know this sermon, what we covered today, a lot, a lot of it's been shaped by their wrestlings with scripture. Um, and I just want to mention that on the front end. And then and secondly and lastly, before we jump in, um, I could spend 10 hours here on stage teaching about this doctrine, but could barely put a dent into it, okay? So I'm going to attempt. I, what I've done is I've synthesized a lot of information. I'm going to try and give that portion to you in about 25 minutes and then wrestle with the scripture for about another 20, 25 minutes after that, okay? Um, but I wanted to kind of come up with a solution. So today you're probably going to have questions. In fact, this might stir up more questions in you than answers. That might be okay. That's a tension we wrestle with with Scripture sometimes. So if you have questions, if you have concerns, if you have complaints, write them down or email them to overtime at clcfamily.church. And on Tuesday, we'll work through that in our podcast, okay? But then secondly, I like talking with people in person. So what I wanted to mention is tomorrow at 10 o'clock, I'm just going to be in the Big Yellow Mug working. So if you're off and you just want to hang out, grab coffee, we'll have a cup of Joe. Maybe Military Joe will be there, right? Uh, we'll have some coffee in the Big Yellow Mug. If you have questions or want to work through any of this, um, I will be available for that. So that's what I have. We all right? We doing okay? All right. Now, uh... To talk about the doctrine of hell, in order to get an understanding of what the Bible says about the doctrine of hell, what I'm going to try and do is wrestle with three questions this morning, okay? The first one of them being, why does hell exist? Why is this a place, right? Second one of them being, what exactly is hell? And then the third one, who goes to hell, okay? Now, if you like things abbreviated and you like things simple and concise, I've shortened these down to three short questions. Why the hell, what the hell, and who the hell, right? <laughs> I'm totally going to get fired. <laughs> we're going to work through these questions. Like, I don't know what you guys are thinking about. I just made them shorter. Um, we're going to try and understand these three questions in order to move forward, okay? The first one, why does hell exist? 
In order to understand why hell exists, we have to step back and take a look at the whole of the scriptures, the whole story of what God is up to, and then what role does hell play in that big story, okay? You ever watch a movie, right? Raise your hand if you've seen a movie, right? We've all seen movies before. Do you ever watch a movie where the antagonist is just getting away with evil and it is eating you up inside, right? You want to see justice roll down like a river, right? You want the, the bad guy to be put in his place and you want the situation to be restored and resolved, right? We all want that when we watch a movie. Part of God's plan in the Bible is to bring redemption and restoration to the whole world. Part of God's plan is to redeem and restore everything that is broken. And get this, Christians are not want that, right? We want justice. We want things to be restored. We want things to be resolved. You look at the world now, you say it's a mess. We have this picture that this is what it could be, right? And so we all want restoration and redemption so that's God's plan is to redeem and restore everything that is broken and the culmination of this we see it in the book of Revelation this picture it's an image that they're showing that John gives us of heaven coming down to earth and heaven and earth becoming one being a new creation that God promises will be free of tears free of pain free of death right and so this is the picture of heaven that we get this is the culmination of the story and the best part about heaven is that we get to live in the presence of God that is the most notable quality of heaven right now follow me this cannot exist this heaven cannot exist unless there's a place to put the mess right this heaven cannot exist if there's not a place to put the mess, right? Heaven can no longer be heaven if there's selfishness and pride and people who want nothing to do with God, right? Heaven cannot exist unless there is a place to put this mess. Tim Mackey, the guy I mentioned earlier, says it this way. It says, hell is a part of God setting right all things. It is in this setting right of all things that the biblical vision of hell has to be located. Hell is a natural, necessary part of to make things right again. So in order for heaven to be heaven, there just has to be a location to put the mess. You follow me? There has to be a location. We see this in the Garden of Eden, right? When Adam and Eve sinned, what was the first punishment? They were moved out of the garden, Right? They were moved out of this heavenly space. They could no longer exist there anymore. So in order for there to be a heaven, there has to be a location for the mess, right? And so why hell? Hell is a part of God's plan to make all things right again. Hell is a natural and necessary solution to make heaven possible, okay? So we know why I exist. Now let's wrestle with the question, you know, what exactly is hell, right? Uh, we, we all, when we hear that word, some images come to our mind, right? When Tim Mackey, the guy I'll reference numerous times today, 
He says a lot of people today see hell as this subterranean torture chamber for bad people, right? This kind of underground, dark, dismal place with fire, this torture chamber for people who do bad. And that's kind of the larger perspective of how a lot of people see hell. And he, he actually roots it back to uh, this medieval depictions of hell. Now bear with me for a moment. He says a lot of our uh, popular discourse around this topic of hell are actually products in some ways of medieval depictions or artwork around hell. And you can go online and look them up if you want from the 1400s to the 1500s. Uh, there's a ton of artwork around hell depicting it as a subterranean torture chamber for bad people. But the problem is, as Mackie says, this isn't rooted in scripture. Like if you take a look at the whole of scripture, that's not what the Bible's trying to get at when it comes to the doctrine of hell. And he actually says there's a problem, you see, because a lot of these, so it's interesting, actually. Let me, let me mention this. Artwork was how people, a lot of times, did their theology back then, right? Because the, the Gutenberg Press was just coming out. There wasn't a Bible in every building, right? So if you had access to a Bible, you would hope that that Bible was in your language. And if it was in your language, you would hope that you are literate and can read it. And so people just couldn't pull up a Bible on their phone or an actual hard copy of the Bible. They just couldn't do that back then. So they looked to artwork. Artwork was kind of a centerpiece for theological formation. That's why stained glass windows were such a huge thing. That's how people would consume and take in the stories of the Bible outside of someone just reading it to them, right? And so this shapes, these, this artwork shapes our understanding, the, uh, our picture of what hell is like as a subterranean torture chamber for bad people. But again, Tim Mackey says, that's not what the whole, whole of the scriptures are getting at. That's not what the grand picture of the Bible is trying to get at. We have to remember the big picture of what God is doing, right? And so what he says is there's a problem with artwork because a lot of it was based on how many you've probably heard of Dante's Inferno which is a poem right he was a Roman poet who wrote this poem which was a depiction of hell but the problem with this poem is it took Greek mythology and some imagery from the Bible and put them together to create this poem and then you have all these people creating artwork depicting what Dante wrote in this poem. And what we walk away with, it's a subterranean torture chamber for bad people, okay? But the scriptures aren't trying to get at that, and I'm hoping that we can bring some clarity to that today. So that's what, I'm going to say, that's what hell is not. That's not what the scriptures are trying to get at. Um, what scriptures are trying to get us, first we have to look at the whole picture of the scriptures, right? Go back to what we just talked about a minute ago. What is the purpose of heaven? It is a place where we can reside in the presence of God forever. And we experience the byproducts of being with God, which is the fullness of life, which is peace, which is joy, right? And so then the byproduct of that, what's the worst quality of hell? It's being in the absence of God. And a byproduct of being in the absence of God is you are separated from source of life right you are separated you don't experience joy you don't experience peace and these things that we find in heaven right everything that doesn't fit in heaven ends up here and so the bible and this is where we have to be careful the bible uses imagery to capture the stark contrast of this 
the Bible is employing right here in this parable metaphor and imagery to try and help us understand this is what life, eternal life is like with God, and this is what eternal life is like apart from God. This is what eternal life is like being in the presence of the very source of life, and this is what life is like away from that source, totally detached from that source. And so the Bible uses imagery to try and help us understand something that is very difficult to understand. And we see this a lot in Scripture. So what I want to mention is we have to be careful not to get caught up in the image itself, but what is the image pointing to? And it's this reality of being separated from God. And so we have to come back to that and remember that. And so we see image all throughout Scripture. Here's a, a few examples, right? Um, we see heaven is described as pure light, right? In, in Revelation 21. And, and then uh, and that's to be in the presence of God is like pure light, right? But then to be in the absence of God, to be out of the presence of God, to be cut off from the source of life is like pure darkness. And we see that image used in Matthew 22. Heaven is a garden. In Revelation 22, it talks about it being a garden. There's life in the soil. There's life there, right? Everything's growing. It is like a garden. And Jesus calls, then on the flip side of that, Jesus calls hell the place where the worm or the maggot does not die. In Mark 9, they consume life, disconnected from the source of life. Really almost harsh image, right? Uh, the next one is where heaven is described as having rivers of life. There's a river flowing from the throne of God is this image that we get to indicate that God is the source of life. And when we are in God's presence, we are connected to the source of life, right? We get this image of a river, but then on the flip side, we get this other image for hell, which is probably one of the most popular images that people hold on to is hell is often described as fire, what does fire do? It eats up. It consumes, right? It is, it is the opposite of life, right? We see that in Matthew 13 and Malachi 4. We see that all over. But Tim Mackey identifies, to which I agree, this has to be imagery because fire and darkness can't exist in the same space. This has to be imagery because fire and darkness can't exist in the same space. These images are trying to paint a bigger picture of just being detached from God. Actually, I'm really excited today the, uh, in Kid Zone. Uh, they're actually doing an object lesson ar around this very topic. Miss Megan's going to give all the kids a blowtorch and uh, say, light it and then conceal the light, right? To show that you can't. I'm kidding. That's not happening today. That's going to happen next week. Um, but you see what we're getting at. You understand what we're getting at, right? We're trying, they're trying to paint a picture of this is what life is like apart from God. And this is what life is when we are in God's presence. That's, the focus. That's what these images are pointing to, trying to help us understand. And so scripture uses these images and a lot of others, which I was reading as I was wrestling through this, that a lot of scholars do not take at face value to be material, material or literal. Does it mean they're not going to be there? I don't know. That's something it may not give a lot of clarity on. But what we know in the literary context is a lot of these authors are trying to use this imagery to paint a bigger picture of what these places are like, right? Even if you look at the origin of the word hell, 
It's actually, it is intended to help the, un, the, the people understand something greater because it was in and of itself an image. Hell comes from the Greek word gena, and in Hebrew it's gehinom, which literally means valley of Hinnom, which is the place right outside of Jerusalem. We actually have a picture that we'll put up here for you. It's a, it's a place right outside of Jerusalem. So what you can do is today, you can jump on a plane and then get in an Uber and say, take me to hell, and they'll take you to this place most likely, right? This is a valley right outside of Jerusalem. When I actually found this picture in the caption, it said, discover the historical site of hell. And I was like, hard pass, no thanks. So the valley is infamous in Jewish traditions for two reasons. One, it was kind of like a dump. Everything of decay, of ruin, would go to this place. And some traditions even hold that it was a burning dump. The trash would go here. But the more severe connotation that they have of this valley and the more atrocious depiction is actually this valley, historically known, if you look in the, New, the Old Testament, you see references to this. This valley was the location of child sacrifices. And so you have the most atrocious evil that you can imagine. And it's in this valley. And so this valley to them was hell. It was a place of ruin, of decay, of evil. Everything contrary to the kingdom of heaven. And where is this valley? It's outside of the city, right? And so when people came up with this word, they're like, it has to be terrible like that place, like the valley of Hinnom, right? So even the word itself is, is representing something greater. Uh, Tim Mack even notes that Paul writes on this. He doesn't write a lot on it, but he writes in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, he says, Hell is eternal ruin away from the presence of God. It's just eternal ruin away from the presence of God. According to this biblical vision of hell, we don't walk away with this subterranean torture chamber where if you do bad things you end up here that's not what the the image is the scripture is trying to get out here you with me he's trying to note that the 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 worst part about hell is you're just separated from god separated from the source of life right and you experience that in fullness it is it is a reality that is best depicted with images of fire destruction darkness which are intended to characterize the nature of this separation that's the that's the picture we get in hell and again i covered that in like 10 minutes uh it's, if we can, can come to us uh in the big yellow mug tomorrow to work through it or if you want to submit a question over time do it it's there's a lot behind this but that's kind of the synthesized overview so that's the first question uh why the hell right why why does hell exist the second question what the hell what exactly is hell and the third question who the hell who goes there according to what we see in scripture, right? And the assumption is that, hey, if you do bad things, if you have a really rocky history, you end up in hell, right? But if that were the case, we'd all be in a lot of trouble, right? We'd all be in terrible trouble. If that were the case, St. Paul would be in trouble because he was a terrorist to the Jews, right? If that were the case, Moses would be in trouble because he killed a man, If that were the case, David would be in trouble because he had an affair and then killed the husband of the person he had an affair with. So it can't be if you do bad things, you end up here. That's not the picture that we get. But rather, it's a place for those who perpetually want nothing to do with God, right? 
It's a place for people who want nothing to do with Jesus. It's a place for people who want nothing to do with the kingdom of heaven. They want to rule their own kingdoms, right? It is a place for people who want nothing to do with Christ. That's why we have our understanding of Jesus is the way, right? He is our means by which we access the kingdom of heaven. And so these are people who perpetually want nothing to do with God. Tim Mackey puts it this way. He says, if someone refuses to be healed by the great physician, God will honor that decision. But what God will not do is allow hell to continue ruining his good world. It's God's mercy to contain human evil and to not let it eternally ravage his good world and his image-bearing humans. And for those who refuse to participate in God's recreation of heaven and earth, he honors that decision. And they remain outside of the city. Hell is God honoring our decision for life and identity apart from him, right? It's like if, if, a, if, if a kid wants nothing to do with you, right? You can't force them, and, right? This is a location not for people to do bad, right? We've all been there. We've all done bad. I've done bad, right? So it can't just be that. It's a place for those who perpetually say, I want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to do with Jesus. I want nothing to do with the kingdom of heaven, right? C.S. Lewis puts it this way. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that, and according to Lewis, all that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. We ultimately almost inherit the kingdom that we build, right? If I'm building a kingdom on earth, and I make myself king, and I make myself savior, and I say, this is it, and I want nothing to do with God, that's the kingdom that I inherit, is a kingdom that wants nothing to do with God, right? That's the picture that it's trying to paint here. If, however, we embrace the kingdom of heaven and embrace Jesus as our Savior, then we embrace the kingdom overflowing with God's presence, right? The source of life, as we talked about moments ago. Now, it is with this understanding of hell that we read the scriptures today. It's a place that is natural and necessary solution for God making things right again, right? As a place totally separated from God's presence, a place that is described as a place of decay, destruction, and isolation, and it's a place that we ultimately choose. It's with this understanding that we read uh, the parable, and this is it's terrible, right? We've not even gotten to the scriptures. Like, I wish, I wish we could take like a 30-minute like intermission right here, or like five, 10 minutes, say, hey, let's go get coffee, let's relax, but we can't ultimately do that now, so I thought of something that might help. I actually have a picture of my dog, and I'm just gonna share with y'all. Here's a picture of my dog. Her name is Belle, not Hell, but Belle, and she's on Instagram if you're curious. You can get her handle from me later, um, but I'm just like, oh, we need some breathing room. What do I do? Let me just throw a picture of my dog up there. Um, all right, we can transition away from uh, Bell. We're going to go back to hell here. Um, now, uh, today we're in the passage of Luke 16, verses 19 to 31, if you want to follow along in your Bibles. Uh, but I want to remind us, uh, Jesus has been teaching the religious people of what? 
right? Every parable we find, he's teaching them. He's saying, abandon your kingdoms of status, of money, of pride in exchange for this heavenly kingdom. He's trying to teach them what the kingdom of heaven is like, who is invited, right? He's trying to get them to understand this kingdom of heaven. And so he wraps up this litany of parables with this parable that is intended to, again, paint a picture of what is to come should they continue to live in their own kingdoms, right? And so here with that, here is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. In verse 19, There was a rich man who was dressed up in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. So like most of Jesus' parables, he kind of starts off with this ambiguous, nameless figure. And he says, there's a rich man, and he's wearing purple, which purple was one of the most expensive dyes. And so this guy's like flashing his Louis Vuitton here, right? This is like some high-quality stuff. And he feasted sumptuously, extravagantly, every single day. This is not like once a month or once a week. Like this is Thanksgiving meal, turkey, ham, salmon, right? All of these things every single day. And that was expensive. You had to have incredible wealth in order to do something like this, right? And so this is his life. And the rich man largely contrasts the next character that we are introduced to. Verse 20. And at his gates lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. So we have this rich man in purple linen, clothed in purple linen, and we have this poor man clothed in sores. And he's at the gate of this guy's house. So he would have been seen. Kind of like imagine the end of your driveway, right? So he would have been seen. And it's detailed that he's covered in sores. Which any, Jesus' Jewish audience would listen to this and think, that is ceremonially unclean. I would not come within a hundred feet of someone who was covered in sores, right? And so people would see this man and they would avoid him. They would not interact with him. And so what was he doing at the end of the driveway? Well, this guy had a feast every single day, right? The rich man. And Lazarus was just asking for scraps. And it's interesting because the passage says, like, whatever fell from his table, right? Kind of imagine would it, like, fall like a meatball, then roll down the driveway, then right into Lazarus' lap? Like, no. Maybe he's kind of waiting for Lazarus to take the trash out. And he's just wanting to look through what can I eat and hear? And it gets even more disgusting because this isn't a tame dog, but he's got company. A dog comes up and starts to lick his sores. That's just a, a picture of total poorness, like just being broken, right? And so this is the image that's given to the Pharisees in this teaching. And so we have these two, uh, these two individuals. We have the rich man and the poor man who's needing sustenance. The rich man who's got everything he could ever need, he's eating for days, but the poor man who's begging for food, who's lacking sustenance. And so, since he's lacking sustenance, it makes the next verse not surprising. Very sad, but not surprising. Verse 22. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. So both of them die. We don't really have the answers exactly what happened, but both of them die, and it's noted that the rich man has a funeral. Makes sense. He has money, so he can have a funeral, but the poor man, it does not mention any type of ceremony for him. Rather, he is carried up to be with Abraham. 
Now it's interesting because what's in store for them largely contrasts. So here the poor man is carried away to be with Abraham. So Jesus' Jewish audience would listen to this and they would be coveting this moment, right? Abraham was the patriarch of their faith. They would want to be in the presence of Abraham, right? That is something they look forward to. So for this poor man with sores to get there would have been baffling. That would have probably upset some of Jesus' Jewish audience. This poor man who had sores, he probably did something to get those sores. How did he end up with Abraham, right? And it was kind of understood that um, in Jewish tradition that those who, you know, went to Abraham, this was kind of described heaven, the patriarchs being there, right? That it would be a banquet feast hosted by Abraham. So here we have this beggar who is now in the presence of God having a banquet feast. But the fate of the rich man who chose a life in rebellion from God, his experience was different. In verse 23. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham from far away with Lazarus by his side. He's in Hades, which Hades is kind of described or it's defined as the abode of departed spirits or this residence of departed spirits, which, which correlates with our understanding of heaven, right? If, if it can't work in heaven, if it would ruin heaven, it has to depart. It has to be somewhere. That would be Hades, or as we understand, as hell, right? Valley of Hinnom, right? And so uh, this is where people who do not want to participate in the kingdom of God, this is where it was understood that they would go. And so he was in Hades and is in torment. A lot of us might begin to read in what we think the torment is. Like we naturally do this sometimes, right? Oh, he's probably burning, right? Oh, he's probably being tortured by some demons. But the scripture doesn't really give us that detail, right? But we have to remember they're employing imagery here. And so let's keep that on the forefront of our mind. In fact, if you study the original Greek of this passage, the word torment is not uh, torment, but rather it is a Greek word basanos, which is a noun, which means touchstone. So we have the, the rich man is in touchstone. Huh, that makes no sense at all. We have a picture of a touchstone. It's right here. A touchstone is a dark stone that you would scratch metals on to reveal the true condition or the true nature of that metal, right? And so if you were trying to figure out if a ring was pure, you would have something that you, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is pure gold, so you ripe, wipe it on the stone, then you take something that's in question, and you wipe it on the stone, and you see how it compares. So it reveals the true nature of something. If something is not pure, it will be revealed. And so this man is in torment, in touchstone. This stone that reveals the true nature of an object. And so he is in torment because his current plight has revealed to him that he was wrong. That the kingdom he built amounted to nothing. It revealed the true nature of who he was. It revealed that the kingdom he spent his whole life building was for naught. It's for nothing. When people realize maybe the scope of what they've done, we've maybe seen this before, they kind of curl in. They are tormented by the reality of what has happened. And so this man is in touchstone. He is in torment because this place has revealed to him who he was, right? You'll follow me. It gets a little bit more complicated. Verse 24. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, 
and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames, right? And what we want to do here is be like, see, he's burning. Like, hell's got fire, and he's burned. But we have to remember, we're going to wrestle with this. This is imagery trying to paint a picture apart from God, right? And so I want to make some observations here. Uh, the first one is this man that he ignored, uh, the, the beggar, Lazarus. He knew his name. He sent Lazarus over to me. So not only he wasn't ignoring a stranger, but rather he was ignoring someone that he knew, which is revealed to us here, right? And he asks Lazarus to dip his finger and to touch his tongue to cool his mouth. Don't we see Lazarus kind of ask for that same thing when they were both alive? He was asking for relief in the mouth. He was asking for relief that this rich man would provide some relief and sustenance and food of which he had plenty of to provide some relief. And so we're almost getting this image of a reversal here that Jesus is trying to paint for the Pharisees. This image of this kind of upside down instance where the roles are reversed, right? And it's interesting uh, because this is what he asked for. He asked just for relief. But what does he not ask for? And Tim Mackey identified this. What does he not ask for? He's under this impression that people can cross these chasms, that someone can come from up there and come down here. But what does he not ask for? He doesn't ask to, yeah, to, to, to be taken from that place. He doesn't ask that Abraham bring him to heaven, which... Scholars suggest it indicates that there's not a remorse, almost a defiance of some kind, of someone who really does not want to participate in the kingdom of heaven. And he's going to boss Lazarus around and say, have him come, release, relieve me from this agony, this torment, right? But he does not ask to be released from this place. He does not ask to be released from this place. Another observation, he is in agony. And remember, this is parabolic imagery helping us to understand what life is like apart from God. This flame is intended to represent something much more devastating than just merely being consumed by fire, right? Here, remember the the rich man, he always satisfy his desires on earth, right? Because he had all the money in the world. He could do whatever he wanted. He could satisfy his desires. But now here he is in a place where he is not in control. He's no longer the king of his own kingdom, right? He is a a burning desire that cannot be satisfied, an intense longing that is utterly beyond his reach as he remains disconnected from the source of life. And so as a result, he is in great agony. In fact, if you look at the Greek word in agony, it's very similar to another word, the word uh, that we find in Luke. I think it's Luke where um, Jesus uh, is lost and his parents are finding him. They have this experience of agony. It's, uh, I'm going to say this wrong, odomenoi, which is similar to the word grief. There's this deep pain, this deep grief, right? So like the severe pains of an open flame, this rich man is suffering great anguish great grief and significant loss because his depravity has been revealed to him and he cannot do anything about it. He cannot buy his way out, right? So neither he nor his kingdom of wealth, status, or moral uprightness can save himself. As a result, he suffers profound anguish. 
A commentary says it this way. To be forever cut off from God's presence, eternally unable to know God's love and mercy, would be a torture best described by being burned ceaselessly by fire. To be cut off from the source of life. We doing okay? Y'all following me? I don't have another picture of my dog. I should probably have put one right here, you know. (laughs) Verse 25, we continue. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And so Abraham's just merely making an observation, right? He said, You built your own kingdom. Like, what did you expect? You built a kingdom where you were king. And you prioritize and idolize money and fame and status. What did you expect? But, La- but Lazarus, he participated in the kingdom of heaven. So I don't know why you're surprised that this is the case, right? And a commentator describes it as, this is the end of a long life trajectory of wanting nothing to do with God, right? God honors that wish. He's not going to force us or strong arm us, right? Verse 26. Besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm, and it has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and so no one can cross from there to us. And so Abraham clarifies this chasm is uncrossable, right? The rich man thought moments ago that maybe it was, and instead of him leaving there, he was asking Lazarus to come down, but Abraham clarifies this passage is not crossable. You know, as I was reading this, I kind of asked the question, like, why is it so strict, right? Like, why is it so strict? And we have to remember the bigger picture. Heaven is a place in the presence of God, and anything contrary to that cannot exist there, or heaven would be impossible, right? And so it has to be fixed, because those who do want nothing to do with God, who they just over and over again want to be the kings of their own kingdoms, they cannot reside in the kingdom of God heaven, right? There has to be a location for people who don't care to participate. And so hell is that place in order to preserve the perfection that heaven is. And so yes, this chasm is fixed. And so in verse 27, he said, then father, I beg you to send him to my father's house for I five brothers that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment, this place of touchstone, of revealing, right? And so it appears for a brief moment that, man, is this rich man having compassion, right? Maybe he's having compassion like he wants Lazarus to be sent to his brother's house, right? And we think for a moment that he's having a bit of compassion, but as you read on, it actually provides a bit of clarity that maybe that's not exactly what is happening here. As the passage closes in, in, in verse 29, Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, and this is Abraham, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will, be, will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, there's a lot happening in this passage as it's closing, but I want to make a couple, three observations. The first one being the rich man's complaint. You see, if you look into it, he's not really asking or really wanting someone to go to his family's house. He's kind of complaining and saying, hey, I didn't get sufficient warning, okay? 
If someone could give them sufficient warning because what you gave me was nothing. You did not warn me. You did not let me know that this was going to be the case. And so he's almost complaining, which again highlights his lack of remorse, his kind of off-putting of responsibilities. He's saying, you guys were insufficient in your warning of me, right? But Abraham, uh, Abraham replies, what more warning do you need, right? He says, you have Moses and the prophets, which... All of us should know that to be, that's the Old Testament basically, right? Moses wrote the first five books, which is a very clear picture of what God's intentions are for the world, right? And then you have all the prophets who came to you to tell you about the kingdom of heaven. So if you're not going to listen to any of them, a dead man could come from the grave and tell you about it, but you wouldn't listen to him, right? He's trying to paint this picture of you've had sufficient warning. So this isn't about sufficient warning it's about an insufficient will because the rich man knows exactly what is needed but he doesn't have the will to abandon his own kingdom to abandon this idea that he is king of his life that he can save himself with his money his status and his good works right he's trying to help him to understand it's not about an insufficient warning it's about an insufficient will you actually don't care to participate you are defiant right and then the third thing is the the bigger picture this is where the parable ends and it should be striking to us because this parable that jesus is teaching to the pharisees and even to us right but this parable that jesus is teaching to the pharisees is almost unfolding in real time it's unfolding in this very moment right because who is jesus talking to He's talking to a group of seemingly religious people that, like the rich man, are obsessed with status and money and good works, right? This is what Jesus has been trying to get them to understand with the last seven, eight parables that we've covered, that the kingdom of heaven is on its way, abandon your kingdoms, right? So this parable is unfolding in real time before our very eyes as he's talking to the rich man, the Pharisees, right? trying to convince them to abandon their kingdoms to not be their own saviors because it will not work and why is he talking to them again to beg them abandon your kingdoms right this is what this is what the 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 moses and the prophets are warning they've been getting at abandon your kingdoms They, they won't work at the end man they will not work and so he's talking to them to convince them to participate in the kingdom of heaven And you could go back and watch this whole series that we've been. Almost every parable was an invitation to participate in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is wrapping it up with this picture of what is to come if we just refuse that. And so he offers this warning in this parable. And it's gracious and sufficient. What a gracious thing for God to do to continue to hang out with these people and try and convince them of what Moses and the prophets already convinced them of, right? And it's interesting because remember the rich man suggested, if you could just send a dead man, like, of course they would believe. But what's happening right here in this moment? What's better than a dead man? God. Jesus in the form of God is in the presence of the Pharisees trying to convince them to participate in the kingdom of heaven. That's way better than a dead man. He's going to be a dead and resurrected man, right? And he's trying to warn them of this, but guess what? They don't get it. They still 
don't get it. This is the parable unfolding in real time. Jesus himself, God himself, is in the flesh warning them of what is to come, and they still don't get it because we see a few weeks later they crucify him, right? We could send you a dead man. We could send you a God. We could send you everything we got, but you're not going to get it. And it has nothing to do with the warning. It has everything to do with the will. And C.S. Lewis might characterize it the situation in this way. He says, They have lived for themselves, not for others, thus not for God. And this, for Lewis, gets at the idea of hell. Anyone who is totally self-centered and self-satisfied cannot seek, or rec- seek forgiveness or recognize the need for forgiveness. Right? That makes sense. Naturally, if I'm so turned in on myself, I won't seek forgiveness. I won't see my wrongdoing. And C.S. Lewis is saying anyone who's totally self-centered and self-satisfied can't seek forgiveness or recognize the need for forgiveness. They cannot love or see the need for relationship with others, including God. Self-centeredness thus, as a natural result and outcome, means separation from others and God. That's hell. Right? If I'm so self-centered that I want nothing to do with anyone around me, so self-centered that I want nothing to do with God, then I'm only inheriting a kingdom that I built myself. I'm only inheriting a space that I've conditioned myself to live in, right? God wants nothing more than to redeem and restore that which is broken. God wants nothing more than for us to experience eternal joy, eternal peace, eternal hope. But God cannot give those things to us apart from himself. God cannot give us those things apart from himself. And so the problem is, is we spend our lives trying to acquire heavenly things through money, through status, through pride, just like these Pharisees and so we fight and fight but at the end it doesn't work and Jesus is trying to tell them that he's trying to tell us that that these things will not be sufficient you cannot save yourself this is scripture's depiction of heaven and hell that God is creating a place for us to get everything that we've ever wanted for earth perfection right hope and joy and to be in the presence of God But the problem is, is what kingdom are we building, right? And so just like almost all of Jesus' parables, he ends it with that that invitation almost, kind of the open-ended, what's going to happen type thing. It's an invitation for for the Pharisees and for us to consider, what's God inviting me to? And Do I have the will to participate? Do I have the trust? This is why it's faith and trust. It's so difficult. Do I have the trust and faith in God to let go of everything I've been fighting so hard for? To trust that he is sufficient alone, Right? So there's that invitation. What are we going to do? I'm going to invite the band up at this time, and we're going to uh, sing a song that kind of talks about this process of responding to that invitation. Uh, <laughs> thanks for hanging in there with me. I know this is a very, very, very difficult topic, but I want to finish it on a note of hope. We have hope, right? We have a lot of hope. We have abundant, sufficient and accessible hope, right? It's available to us. All we have to do is orient ourselves to it. You don't have to work harder. You don't have to pray harder. You don't have to conjure up good works. 
God will do that. He will transform us. But all we have to do is reorient ourselves away from the kingdom that we are building to the kingdom of heaven. Reorient ourselves away to all the things that we obsess over that will not matter in a hundred years and orient ourselves to what will matter. And it's the kingdom of heaven, something that we all want. So uh, in the Christian world, we call this repentance. It's this process of literally kind of doing a 180. It's turning away from something, but not just turning away from something, it's turning towards something. And so, this morning, I want to invite us to repent and reorient away from this idea that we have to work harder, perform better, to this reality that Jesus has done the work for us, right? I want us to repent and reorient away from ourselves as Savior and towards Jesus as our Savior, away from relying on money and status and all these things that will fade and to reorient ourselves towards something that will last, right? And we have great resources to do that. We have community, right? We have scripture. We have prayer. But the matter is, is what will we orient ourselves towards? And when we do this, when we do orient ourselves towards Jesus, we get everything that we've always wanted all along, right? Which is a perfect and just world. But ultimately, presence we get to live in the presence of God right and so as we sing this song together the song of repentance which is what it's called may we identify what kingdoms am I subscribing to what kingdoms am I participating in and may we humbly with great hope great joy and great expectation respond and participate in the kingdom of heaven amen all right let me pray for us real quick Heavenly Father, you are such a good God. You go to great, almost reckless lengths to bring us along. So we, God, we pray for any spirit of resistance. We pray against any spirit of self-centeredness. We pray against any anxiety. And we just pray that we would just lay these things down and reorient ourselves to you, that we may experience life in your presence. So it's something you want for us, and that's something we want. So God, we pray that you do work in us, that you challenge us, and that we might participate in what you have for us. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's uh, stand and sing this song together.
close, held in your promise of grace. Come change our hearts, restore who we are, we pray. Oh, have mercy, Christ, have mercy. But this is our prayer right that is our prayer hey um super appreciate y'all hanging in there i know that was a lot but we are not without hope and uh, i realize it went way over so throw a shoe at me next time but um i want to re- reiterate and mention i know this is a lot if you have questions go ahead submit them over time at ccfamily.church we'd love to work through that but i'm in the coffee shop tomorrow at 10 o'clock anyway so if you just want to chat i would absolutely love that um let me finish with this uh lazarus the name lazarus defined means God has helped and the good news is that God has helped we cannot do this on our own that is good news the good news is that God has helped and God is inviting us to participate in the kingdom of of heaven so may every day 
may we just reorient ourselves and figure out what kingdom will I build today. We love you guys so much. Thanks for hanging out with us today. We'll see you guys next week.
half of my life in the way you should go. Oh! 